Welcome to Halo Drop. I'm your host, Vishal Gurbukshani. I'm joined by Snil Verma and Krishna Subramanian. We're going to talk about what makes things exciting in India and how we can bring that in cross-border to America. So Mason, it says you started your career at technology companies such as Boeing, SSL, and Broadcom. Uh, Mason entered the digital asset space in 2013, designing and building the infrastructure for a dollar-based blockchain. In 2014, Mason co-founded Payroll Integrations, a payroll automation company whose clients today compromise a 14% of the U.S. 401k market. In 2016, he built the first commercially viable custody solution on the Ethereum blockchain. And now Mason guides the Tokensoft team in business strategy, business development, and market planning. Tokensoft's investors include Coinbase, eVentures, Base10. Mason is a regular speaker at financial technology conferences, and he's tapped into some of the most smartest minds in crypto. Mason's the Bay Area native, and he's excited. We're excited to have you here, even though he just moved recently to Austin. We still love you, though. All right, Mason, just for, you know, for the folks on Clubhouse and, uh, you know, everybody else listening to the podcast, let's just give the people what they want. What is going to be the price of Bitcoin in five years? In five years? Well, it seems to uh, go up about 10x every three years. So I would just extrapolate that out. And so in, in five years, it will probably be, uh, I don't know, 500, 600k-ish maybe. There you go. That's the uh, that's the soundbite for today. Awesome, dude. Let's kick let's kick it off to let's get into your background, Mason. So, um, walk us up, you know, to your upbringing. Like I I heard a lot, did a lot of research before, you know, we brought you on, and you know, I think you said from high school you started something, right? And you started a company in high school, just thinking about building a financial company is super risky, and then that too, thinking about crypto that early. Walk us through in the beginning, like what do you think your upbringing gave you that helped you think about a taking a risk, and then also going into financial services. I've always wanted to just uh, start a business since I was a kid. Uh, my mom owned her own business and I always saw her doing her stuff. And that sort of just got me into the mindset of, you know, at some point, I definitely want to start my own business. I also always had like random interests. So for a while it was uh, playing the drums, I was into cars and all kinds of like random stuff. And uh, when I went off to college and was thinking about what kind of job I wanted, I thought, well, I want a cool job. I want to do something fun and that's interesting and that's exciting. So I was always interested in technology, stuff like that. And then um, at some point, we had this very notable econ professor in high school. I'll give him a shout out. His name was uh, Todd Dwyer. He sort of just inspired a lot of people, I think, at our high school to uh, think about economics and, and business and finance and all that stuff. And so going through college, I always wanted to sort of like land in something that was sort of at the intersection of finance and, and technology. In college, I was uh, day trading a bunch and that was really interesting and, and fun. But at the same time, it never felt like ethical. Like there's always something about like uh, financial markets that felt fundamentally like not sound, if that makes sense. It didn't have like an integrity. And uh, somewhere along the line in, uh, after, after college, me and my friend wanted to uh, start a company and we wanted to create sort of uh, payment rails. And sort of along what I guess Stripe does today or any of the payment processors do today, 
And uh, as we were building that out, we sort of came across, or I came across Bitcoin for the third time. And so I was just playing around with it. I, I forked it and, and, and was, you know, trying to send transactions and stuff like that. And at some point, I sent a transaction to myself uh, from one wallet to another wallet. And I had the realization there was no company in the middle of this. A decentralized network just sort of processed a transaction for me. There's no company in the middle. That's where we sort of landed on. Um, I sort of like got started to get into crypto and, and how that technology worked. Um, and so, like, when it comes to why why do I take risks, I think I just get into different rabbit holes and I just get really interested and I just start going down that path and uh, just do what's interesting to me, what's exciting. And uh, that's sort of how I landed in the crypto space. So, yeah, I guess, you know, as you as you're thinking through this and, you know, you're 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 exploring the, the crypto space and, you, you know, as you were going through that process, how did you like have the courage to, to actually just jump right in and, and start a company versus the traditional routes of maybe just going out and getting another job somewhere. Did you feel like you had like an unfair advantage uh, when you're jumping into this? <laughs> the first company, I, I had a normal job and I was sort of playing around with it on the side uh, in terms of like trying to build my own like dollar-based blockchain, that, that sort of payments network that I was talking about earlier. And uh, what happened was... I just sort of got sucked into it. So I didn't know how to code before. I like did like basic low level coding. And this was uh, the first time I actually tried building a full stack product. And uh, I just got sucked into it. So it wasn't necessarily, I was taking a risk to me at least. It was, I was addicted to sort of like building something and building something new and trying to make it work. And so I would code from like 7 a.m. to like 1 a.m and then wake up and do it again because the same ideas and the same problems I was trying to solve were, were happening the next day. That was pretty much it. I'm actually a very risk-averse person, and I was just raised in a very risk-averse conservative family. Uh, so I think it's weird to think of it as like I was taking a risk, but I was just sort of getting sucked into it and couldn't stop stop building. Awesome. Give us sort of the 30,000-foot the, the, the view, right? So, so now you've got the idea, you're working through all of these problems, how did you kind of start thinking about, you know, who did you pull in? Who did you go to for investment? And how did you start to sort of think about your your first customer? And, and just walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So the first company, I didn't think of our first customer. And so that's the company that taught me that I should think more about customers instead of uh, building something cool, which is actually very common in the crypto space. And then the next company, we sort of had, like with the 401k thing, we had really good product market fit. And for that company, like the lesson for me was like, I, I just wanted to build a really scalable product. And I was on the tech side, I wasn't on the business side this time. That was sort of like the lesson from the, from the second one. And I think I probably tried building like five or six different things uh, at different points in time. And it's like every time you build something and try to get it up and running, it's like a different lesson. Uh, so the first time I sort of learned I need to build something very specific for a very specific customer. Uh, the second time I was trying to build something scalable. And I think what we learned from there is just the business model could have been a lot better and a lot more, I think, aggressive for, for the service that it was providing. From there, I think my, my goal just became, okay, I don't know what ideas are going to work and what won't work. And so that's, that's sort of the segment of the problem that I just threw out. I was like, I'll, I'll never know what's going to be like viral and highly successful. And so I was sort of in a mode at some point as in, in terms of like trying to just stand different products up really quickly. 
And so for a long time, I just spent a lot of time just coding, trying to figure out how to stand up any any type of like website or product um, so it could be usable and see if it just takes off. So I did that a bunch. By then, I think I was working at BitGo. They're now a crypto custodian. Back then, it was a wallet company. The first time something sort of took off like that was with the Ethereum multisig web wallet, where that was really early. That was April 2016. So anything that you made in the Ethereum world that worked, uh, people would start using and, and would get gain uptake. And a lot of those products sort of morphed into really big companies today. Uh, like MetaMask is a really good example of that. That's just something someone just put out there and it started taking off because, well, it just it just worked. That was sort of the next stage for me was just mastering how to build things really quickly, get them to market. If you can uh, just get them out there and launch them as a product. So maybe you get them in the news, get people talking about it. Then you can actually see if they get traction or they don't get traction. And so you can just sort of latch on to the things that do get traction. That was sort of the next phase for me in terms of figuring out how to you know, start a, start a startup. No, that's amazing. And then I guess now that you're in that mindset of starting, you know, for the people that are listening, I guess, what are the other things you're thinking about to know, okay, this is how much runway I have now that you're customer focused, like, how did you balance like work life? And then how did you know, like how much more runway you had left? Yeah. So, uh, for a long time, I didn't balance work life. I was, uh, still coding from like seven to, to one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yeah, so so I think Tokensoft was the first company that actually had a business model that worked uh, and had a product that worked, uh, both sort of in tandem. And I think that's sort of like the secret. Like you can have amazing tech, but you also need an amazing business model that's doing something like better, faster, cheaper. Tokensoft was the first time that we that sort of created something that had that. We built it in like three weeks. We got uh, two paying customers that launched in, you know, the second within like two weeks. And it was a really big ticket item. So uh, with one customer, we were able to sustain maybe uh, a, few, a few months of runway for three, four people. So back then, we, we didn't really have an office. Uh, I think we were paying like $1,000 a month for a room in an office, and we're working out of that. Once you start like with revenue coming in, I think the game is sort of uh, how do you just manage burn and make sure customers keep coming in? Uh, and so that sort of became the game within the next three months from there. And fortunately, the crypto market was really, really hot in the summer of 2017. And so I felt like we we're catching the tail end of the wave. I thought the market would sort of go quieter by the end of 2017. But the market continued and it was strong about till the summer of 2018. And crypto is very cyclical. For those that don't know, there will be times when the Bitcoin price goes really high. And now everyone's excited about Bitcoin. Everyone wants to get in. Companies are getting funded. And then for the next two, three years, it might be quiet. And so there might be not many customers coming in. You might have had all of your company assets in crypto. And so maybe you have a lot less money now and you have to sort of pare back. But for us, we, we did take in crypto at first, a mix of crypto and cash. Uh, we might have been about 50-50, and because the market was going up every day or every week, our runway was extending. So for companies that are out there, when the market's about to go up or when it's quiet, definitely stock up on crypto and uh, keep it on your balance sheet. This is a lesson I think larger companies are just starting to learn. And that's also that's always just like a nice to have. It is risky. Um, you can lose all of it, so expect you know the scenario where, where it goes to zero. But back then, yeah, we we're 50-50, and 
we were bringing customers in through through December 2017 into the next year. And so, yeah, everything was just moving in the right direction. And um, we just kept getting more customers. Runway wasn't really a consideration because it was a big ticket item. But we were, uh, yeah, we were in a comfortable spot. People may or may not realize this, but you're probably one of the most running one of the most influential companies in the crypto space. Uh, You're not only providing the access in rails for individuals to participate, but you're doing it in a way that is, quote unquote, correct. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, the reason that this company exists is because uh, a lot of people in the crypto space were ignoring regulations, and we were the probably the first company uh, specific to securities regulations that, that came in and said, hey, here's a solution. If you're doing what you're doing before, uh, now you can do it in a regulated manner and have that sort of uh, confidence that you're doing it in a regulated manner. For me, I've always tried, I was always like in the crypto space worrying about like, what's the right way to do things? So the lesson with the first company, uh, the reason we had to stop doing it was uh, we were trying to build something that was like a payments rail, uh, but on, on the blockchain. The big problem was that it was a custodial solution and therefore we needed the money transmitter license. And so spent a year building it, a month talking to lawyers, learned that we need all these expensive licenses, so we stopped doing it. Fast forward to TokenSoft, uh, the first thing I did was figure out what regulations we needed to follow. So I knew, you know, the SEC regulations uh, in the crypto space were completely fresh. No companies really had followed that before. There were three or four fines regard- relating to the SEC in the crypto space that were given out, but there was no company out there that was following the SEC regulations. So I sort of set out to build a solution that connected investors with blockchains uh, while following the SEC regulations. And so we're the first company to start doing that. That's just a lesson I learned early on was, okay, if you're going to build anything, figure out how to do it right first from a legal perspective and then build a product because otherwise your product can't scale. So what if your product scales really well uh, in the blockchain space, but it's not following regulations? Uh, now you might have to close up shop or you might have you know hit some road bumps that you didn't necessarily prepare for uh, on your balance sheet. That's just something that was super important to me, and we're just happy to have you know been able to help a lot of companies do that. Uh, you know, as of today, the companies that we've helped bring to market comprise uh, over ten billion dollars in, in in market cap. Oh, that's amazing! I think uh, you kind of bring up this really interesting sort of concept, right? Ultimately, you are one of the few people and uh, one of the few companies in the space that is helping take the proverbial square peg and trying to fit it into the round hole, right? I mean, crypto is new. There's, there isn't a lot of regulation around it. And you're having to deal with a lot of archaic frameworks, financial frameworks that really don't apply to crypto in, in the normal sense. So how are you sort of interpreting these laws? You mentioned, you know, you kind of work with, with lawyers and whatnot, but this is a gray area. And ultimately, you have to make a decision one way or the other. So when a company comes to you with a new idea that really is smack in the middle of the gray area, how are you helping them decide which way to go? And, and how are you kind of bringing that advice to market? Yeah, so if you if you think of like the blockchain as a protocol level solution, it's very like low level, it's very crusty, and people are building products on top of that. People are shipping products every day and they'll scale. But uh, on, on the other side of things are sort of the regulations. And so you can have a, a technology that scales really well in the space, but how do you know it's legal, right? And so as this technology stack sort of builds up, at some point it's going to have to map into regulations, especially if it's holding other people's money or helping bring in investment, things like that. And so the way I, th- I think about it is sort of there's, there's the blockchain, which is uh, you can't really change. It's sort of a, a static protocol just for the purposes of this exercise. And then on the other side are laws, 
they're also static. And so, you know, as a startup, it's very hard to change the laws. You shouldn't expect to do that. And so what we built is sort of the glue in between those two things. And so we're the software layer that sort of merges those two things that makes it easier for blockchains to interact with their investors specifically or their donors or whatever they want to call it. How I think about it is just sort of a mapping and like all laws, no matter how you look at them, they boil down to like four or five technical concepts that you can go and automate. And so for securities laws, we just automated those four or five rules uh, in every country. Uh, and so now you have a very scalable solution that can bring in uh, tens of thousands of investors and tens or hundreds of millions of dollars internationally uh, into a single blockchain entity or foundation or, or company. That's basically what we what we do at the end of the day. Wow, that's awesome. I think, you know, if you take a step back, right, what, what it was really exciting to me, what you're describing, right, you're like, we were doing it right because we followed security. What got me into crypto in the beginning was the fact that for the first time you have now programmable trust, right? For the first time you can actually now trust a computer through code, right? And that because, because of that, now you can program things like compute, or you can program things like security, you can program things like currency. Can you walk us through, like, if you look at that overall financial services picture, you know, for someone that's just entering right now, getting excited about crypto, it's actually pretty confusing, right? Because before you could, everyone just like, oh, read the Bitcoin white paper, right? Now it's like, there's thousands of white papers to read and it's like actually super hard to get into it. And now the next, the new buzzword is yield farming. And then there's a new token. And now everyone's like, you know, barbers and taxi cab companies are telling you what crypto to invest in. So I guess walk us through, if you know, if it's 2021, if someone came to Tokensoft, I think my takeaway from your website is like you do KYC on the fly super easily. You're able to get in through registered securities. And then from there, how should someone that's getting into crypto then think about A, the value that you're bringing in and then B, what other things do you recommend they do to educate themselves? Yeah, so the educating thing is, is kind of interesting. So for a very long time, I told people, you know, even with like hundreds of blockchains out there, maybe up until like last year, I would say if you want to understand how the blockchain space works, just go understand Bitcoin. And then from there, you'll get everything else. Because if you break up like Bitcoin into like the, I don't know, six to eight fundamental concepts and constructs, you sort of understand how every other blockchain out there works. And I, I didn't really understand really how blockchains work from the bottom up till I sort of started building out every little piece uh, so I could teach you a Bitcoin bootcamp. And, and that's where it like really clicked for me in terms of all the aspects of, of blockchains. What are those six layers? You just said six to eight. Do you have like a quick one-liners on each? I'll see if I can remember. Okay, let's go for it. One sort of uh, fundamental building block of Bitcoin is just proof of work. So understanding Hashcash does a really good job of that, uh, explaining like, you know, how, that, how that works. Um, the other is sort of like the peer-to-peer -peer networking elements and how blocks are propagated and accepted. And so that's sort of another bucket. And then the key generation is another bucket. Uh, and so, you know, what algorithm are you using for key generation, how does signing work, all that stuff. Another build, fundamental building block is sort of the, the actual blockchain. What information actually goes into the blockchain and what makes that chain uh, actually work? And so I think there's a few more of these, um, but I think you know all blockchains sort of fall into those fundamental you know concepts, and actually one that that scales to you know Ethereum as well because people think of them as very distinct. But Bitcoin actually has smart contracts. So the P2SH model is basically a set of rules where if you follow the rules, now you can unlock funds. Ethereum sort of basically took that and made it completely open-ended and said, okay, you can create, you can sort of define any type of relationship that's uh, between any number of people and that's monetary. And, you know, you can create different assets as well. 
that sort of helped me understand how, you know, all other blockchains actually work. And then, you know, if you're getting into DeFi today, there's so much complexity now. And uh, there's places where you can, you know, earn a yield. There's places where you can, you know, there's there's automated market makers like SushiSwap, Uniswap. There's a lot of like different concepts out there. So if you're trying to like learn that stuff today, I would probably pick two or three in each bucket and just do a deep dive through the smart contracts. And that will literally explain everything to you. I don't know if I'd even bother trying to understand the entire blockchain today if I was just entering the space. Because like every day there's just more and more to learn. And how are you going to possibly absorb and understand, you know, literally everything from the blockchain world up to the sort of like the DeFi world as well? That's probably what I would do is I'd probably look at an AMM smart contract. I'd look at, I don't know, makers uh, smart contracts and try to sort of create block diagrams and understand exactly the flow of, of how everything happens to sort of understand, you know, the big picture and what's going on today. Before we start talking about uh, going further down into like security tokens and things of that sort, one of our, our common friends made an announcement, uh, was it maybe about a, a few days ago, a week ago, Elon has been a big fan of Bitcoin recently and uh, mentioned, you know, Tesla was is going to accept Bitcoin as a payment in the near future and talked about making a, you know, $1.5 billion investment. We know you're, you're probably the, the pioneer and the first person to, to ever buy a Tesla with Bitcoin four or five years ago. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that and maybe something that's a little painful, you know, highlighting what the, the value of that Bitcoin is today based on what you bought it or when you bought the Tesla. Yeah. So in, uh, I think it was 2016, that's when the uh, Model 3 reservations were going live and I reserved one Model 3, and then the next day I was like, you know, it'd be interesting is if I could see if I could sort of do the same process, but with Bitcoin. And so how do you do that, right? Because back then Tesla was only accepting cash. And I think as of right now, they only, or sorry, they only accept, you know, credit cards or, or debit cards. There's this service that I was I was using because um, it was it was a it was a company where I, I knew the founders played around with the product. It's called ShakePay, and back then, there was two or three services like this that would allow you to take Bitcoin and convert it to dollars. And so basically, with some Bitcoin, you could create a virtual card, a virtual Visa card, for example, and then you could use that to pay. Uh, and when you pay, it basically takes your Bitcoin, converts it to dollars, and makes that payment for you. Uh, use one of those to make the reservation. There's a blog post uh, about it as well online if you Google. These businesses can, you know, a lot of businesses out there today can take Bitcoin without taking it directly on the balance sheet. That's always like the problem, right, is they don't want balance sheet exposure to Bitcoin because it's volatile and, and scary to accountants and CFOs. There's a lot of solutions out there that will let you take Bitcoin on one side and have dollars land on the other side. And so, you know, companies like Tesla today could do that. You know, they could actually theoretically accept any cryptocurrency and have it land in dollars in their accounts with a payment processor out there. But anyways, so I did that. And uh, the bad thing about purchasing items with Bitcoin is that the price of Bitcoin keeps going up. And so uh, the longer away you are from that purchase, the more painful it gets. That's the big issue. So if, if you sort of like calculate what you spent historically in Bitcoin, it's probably in the hundreds of thousands at today's price or in the millions at today's price. And I think that's very, 
that's a very sort of painful uh, thing to live with in the back of your mind. So if you have Bitcoin out there and you're thinking of spending it, just don't spend it on, on big ticket items. If you spend five, 10 here or there, that, that's, that's probably fine. You won't regret it later. But if you're purchasing big ticket items, then it's, it's a lot more painful to live with down the line. You can definitely feel your pain. I believe, I believe also the, uh, the person that purchased pizza, they, they spent about 10,000 Bitcoin for pizza on Pi Day. And I think that it was, uh, it ended up being about $20 worth of Bitcoin at that time, but that's pretty exciting. I think also the other person that had buyer's remorse was the, uh, the gentleman that bought a house for Bitcoin as well. Uh, I believe however much Bitcoin he spent on the house, he would have been a billionaire by now. I think, uh, Chamath also really recently tweeted out that he purchased a $1.6 million property in 2016 or 2017. Right. And, uh, yeah, he did the math. I think it's in the tens of millions uh, today. <laughs> right. All right. So let's go switch gears to security tokens. Tell us what they are, why they're important, and, uh, and, and why folks should be paying attention to them right now. So uh, most cryptocurrencies out there today are digital assets, which means they fall under a certain set of regulations that essentially lets you treat them like money, right? So like cash that you have freely transferable. You can move it around internationally, give it to anyone. And uh, blockchain assets that fall under securities laws are different. They might have a different set of characteristics. For example, uh, they might have had a bunch of investors uh, and are, are centralized, uh, which would make them sort of a security. They might have uh, cash flows involved. So there might be a centralized entity that is promising cash flows, which would make it a security. Um, and so basically, if they have the characteristics of a security, then, you know, there's, uh, they have to follow securities laws. Um, there's a couple of cool ones that we put out there. So we did the first and only SEC registered assets on the blockchain, which means that we had to work with the SEC to get them approved. These are cool and interesting because now with assets that are out there, you can sort of do more. You can promise more. So maybe you can do uh, a crypto index and uh, have people basically get exposure to maybe different thematic indexes so they don't have to go purchase every exchange coin individually. They don't have to go purchase every privacy coin ind individually. We have one company uh, that we're working with. They're called uh, INX. They're the first IPO on the blockchain. And so basically, if you participate in their IPO, they are promising token holders 40% uh, of the cash flows please read their prospectus for the details and uh, limitations of that. So I think that's something sort of like interesting. So a company now can basically uh, fundraise, uh, not give out any equity, um, but allow the, the investors that invested to get exposure to the underlying cash flows, which sort of like creates a closer bond between uh, the people and the company, uh, sort of like uh, Tesla holders that are also big Tesla investors. All right. It creates like a different like bond that you have with 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 the company. It's a different experience in terms of investing. And uh, there's another company we're working with. It's called Arca. It's a uh, it's a U.S. Treasury backed uh, stablecoin. And so now it's a stablecoin backed by U.S. Treasuries. Uh, there's a return on it. Um, so we're still really early in the space. I don't think all the cool use cases have really been explored. But I think we have the regulatory component down. So we figured out a regulatory wrapper for this stuff. And I think maybe the next year, two, three years, we'll actually see a lot more different types of creative assets sort of come out. I think the on-chain cash flow concept is really interesting. Um, so if you can do a rev share with a set of investors and they can be more engaged in what's happening, what types of 
product features you're rolling out. They can be more involved in you know, the things that are happening on your platform. I think that's a very different experience for investors that could be interesting. Um, I wouldn't say we filled out, figured out the killer app in the space. So I think we're still like in the, in the building and trying to figure out what's actually valuable about doing this phase. But I think by the end of the year, we'll have some really cool things come out of this umbrella uh, that could be interesting. Uh, we also launched a new type of concept uh, under wrap.com which is more in the digital asset space, but it'll probably poke into the security space uh, by the end of the year as well. That's awesome. I mean, can you talk about just in the sense of like, you know, you built the ERC-1404 spec, right? So what was that whole process like? Are you hoping more people add on to that or is that going to become the standard? And then walk us also through just the volume of trading for security tokens, right? So like on one side of it, to your point, it gets people closer to the actual security. But then now that you have a security token, you've done all this work, is it tradable? How much volume are people using it per day? Yeah, I was sort of talking before about how uh, the blockchain is sort of a, a static concept. Uh, regulations are a static concept, and we're sort of a glue in the middle. One of the pieces that makes that glue possible is a standard called ERC-1404. So if ERC-20 is for creating freely tradable digital assets on Ethereum, uh, ERC-1404 is for basically creating uh, tradable digital assets that follow certain rules. And so now we can take the ERC-20 concept and we put a set of rules on there. And we can put on rules such as, you know, people in this country can't trade with people in that country, or people of this investor type can't trade with people of the other investor type. We could allow the asset to only be tradable on this platform, not that platform. So there's a level of control that we can put on there that basically mimics what the regulations require. Uh, with securities on the blockchain. So uh, what was building that out like? We had to talk to a lot of lawyers and we basically synthesized all of the requests and requirements that they had. So one of the use cases is we, d we want people outside of the US to be able to purchase it and trade it freely, but we don't want people in the US to touch it. And so now we have the concept of different lists of investors. Um, another restriction that came out was, uh, well, we want to be able to, uh, what if someone loses their wallet? It's a security. You know, if you have uh, shares in a stock and you lose access to your account, you know, you can actually still recover those. There's a procedure for recovering those shares if they're in your name. Uh, and so how do we do that? And so we made a token that's also revocable by an administrator. Um, so now uh, basically the same concept you have in real life, uh, you now have on the blockchain as well. And so we had conversations with lawyers, uh, the SEC, and also the exchanges that are out there that would be servicing this, these types of assets, and basically synthesized all those requirements into ERC-1404. That's the only security token standard today that's made it through the SEC. Uh, so we're really excited about that. Also, it's, it's completely open source. So if people want to add to it, they can go add to it. Uh, we just recently adapted it to uh, Swiss uh, regulations as well, because there will be some uh, stable coins and equities uh, that we'll be announcing soon out of uh, Switzerland and uh, Singapore as well. And so it's something that we've been adapting. It's completely open source and other people can use it, adapt it as well. So there's been a couple other companies that have tried to get it through SEC filings as well. But yeah, it's not, it's non-proprietary at all and anyone can uh, play around with it. That's amazing. Congrats on all, all that success. What, what has been the biggest shift you've had to help folks navigate? You know, given some of your work, you're giving asset managers and financial institutions a secondary market. People make a big deal about this in the non-crypto world, but you just provide it as a service. Where is the future for secondary markets before they go live? 
and you know follow on to that like token to exchange like how has that path changed over the last few years and what is the biggest thing that people aren't paying attention to yeah so so the promise of the security token space was basically to take uh illiquid assets and make them liquid and I think where I've sort of like landed on that is that there's going to be like services out there like Card X, and you know the space actually just needs better software. They don't necessarily need the blockchain. Uh, like yeah, we do have a lot of uh, you know tokens are freely liquid in, in in the blockchain space and all that stuff, but I think we're going to need a little bit more regulatory work before that happens. Like for example, right now security tokens aren't freely tradable; they're still restricted, and so actually right now they're probably more restrictive and harder to use than uh, traditional uh, securities and secondary markets. And so that's why I say like we're still sort of in the building phase and maybe by the end of the year we'll have uh, security tokens that are actually freely tradable and liquid. But there are solutions still being built out today to go down that path. So one thing that we announced recently was our uh, integration with our uh, transfer agent and uh, T0, uh, which is in ATS. And so now any securities that we sort of put out there have an integration point to T0. And so theoretically, they could have, you know, additional liquidity by by that sort of pipeline. There will be probably a handful more that we announce. There's, you know, open finance out there and INX um, and there's uh, there's Archix. There's a, there's a bunch that are coming up, but it's still really, really early and volumes aren't really there yet. I'm thinking by the end of the year, we'll finally have the infrastructure there. But, you know, securities versus digital assets, securities are just super complicated. There's tons of regulations you have to follow. The regulations are different per country. And so it's a much uh, tougher path to get there. You know, one thing that people ask us quite often, right, and now that we're moving where crypto is a lot more acceptable is, you know, thinking about treasury and how much should folks be thinking about keeping, you know, their treasury in, in crypto? Are, are you seeing folks do like 50, 50, are they doing like 10%, uh, depending on how courageous they are and adventurous, or, you know, is there sort of an algorithm that you're helping these companies kind of think about when, when they're kind of putting treasury together? Yeah. So this is a, a very fun question. And it's kind of funny because crypto companies traditionally have just had everything in crypto. Well, not all the companies, but there's there's a handful of companies out there that just had everything in either Bitcoin or Ethereum. And uh, whenever they need the cash, they just sell or sell in amounts to basically cover the next month. That's definitely the riskiest path and the hardest to navigate because there's nothing harder than, you know, tracking a fluctuating asset on, on your balance sheet. And so a lot of companies did that. The problem was like in, in down markets, they would get squeezed and have to significantly downsize or... Uh, maybe they go out of business, which I've seen happen a couple of times from, from companies that, that held a lot of crypto. The other thing that's, that, that sort of you can do today is basically take sort of a, a mixed approach to so maybe keep most of your stuff in cash, maybe allocate 10%. And you can do like 10% in just Bitcoin. And you can uh, maybe do 50-50 Bitcoin ETH if you want to stay like fairly risk averse. This is not financial advice. Uh, please uh, seek the advice of a financial professional uh, before doing any of this. Uh, and I'm, I'm probably wrong. Uh, so uh, you can either do, you know, 10% Bitcoin. One thing that, that we did recently was just do half-half Bitcoin ETH. Uh, we use a lot of Ethereum for our day-to-day -day operations. And so it made sense to have uh, Ethereum exposure. But, you know, when you're doing that, definitely expect, you know, if you're at the, at the top in, in the market, you know, Bitcoin has traditionally gone down to 20% of, of whatever the top has been. 
So I think whatever you're, you're putting in, like keep that scenario in mind. You know, what if this goes down to 20% of the present value when I'm, you know, putting the Bitcoin on my balance sheet? The other thing you can do if you're, I think if you're more risk avert, uh, risk tolerant, I would say, uh, just put 50% of your assets in, in Bitcoin and ETH. And again, it depends on how much you need for day-to-day -day, like operations. That's definitely like some math that you should be doing is, you know, how much cash is going out the bank? How much cash do I have total? And how much of that am I willing to put into crypto? And so from there, you can now go, okay, I'm comfortable only putting 10% uh, because maybe I don't have that much cash, but, you know, I definitely like to have exposure to Bitcoin just in case the market continues going up. There's different ways to sort of like think about that. The other way to think about it as well is, you know, for example, we would occasionally accept crypto as payment. And the reason is we fall into the more risk tolerant bucket. We think we understand this asset better than most people. And so we are willing to keep that crypto on our balance sheet and just, you know, just manage it or just see what happens. And so that's something we've done historically. And I would say maybe we've taken historically 50% in crypto in either Bitcoin and ETH as a payment. That actually helped us out a lot in the early days uh, because it was an up market. That's another thing you can do is maybe you can say, okay, so I'm, I'm a company and I have uh, this revenue stream. And for this revenue stream, uh, I'm going to allow uh, people to pay in crypto. Um, and that's going to be how I get my crypto exposure without you know, actively buying crypto. It's a way of uh, dollar cost averaging for, for corporations, perhaps. You know, you can do something like, okay, I don't want more than 20% uh, of this revenue stream to actually be in crypto. So if it goes over 20% of what comes in for a month, I'm going to sell off, put anything above 20% into cash. And that's sort of how I manage it. So you can build like different frameworks like that to sort of model out how much risk you're willing to take and figure out, you know, how much of a loss you're willing to, to bear for the next two to three years if it does go down and you, you're, you're purchasing crypto at the top. But, you know, when you accept it as a payment method, then the great thing is, uh, you know, in a down market, you're getting more crypto. Uh, that's going to go up later. In an up market, you're getting more crypto, but uh, or you're getting more the same amount of crypto, but it, it might go down. And so, like, there's all these scenarios that could happen that's worth modeling in. Um, but, yeah, those are my general thoughts. Awesome. No, that's awesome. I can't wait to see the notes on that. Um, I want to switch gears real quick to uh, to wrap.com. Um, I, I know one of your announcements you did, you, you were just talking about stacks on stacks. So definitely wanted to learn more about that. Um, but you know, I think overall, when you think about what wrapping does, I think, first of all, I think you were super ingenious to think of that name earlier on before it became normal, right? Because you got that domain name, uh, which everyone should check out. But walk us through your thought process in terms of how you got the insight before everyone else, right? Because you're in the industry and the fact that you were able to even think about this before it became common, I think is a pretty unique trait. So if you can share that. And the second thing then is now that, you know, you started wrapping things, like where does it stop, right? Because, you know, one side, do you want other people to wrap? Is it decentralized? Because, you know, you use Anchorage for custodian, you have CMS holdings, like, Walk us through like the vision you have of these wrapped assets, uh, but first share us kind of how you got the insight, uh, but I think before a lot of other people did. For those that don't know, wrapping is a concept of basically taking an asset into a wallet or a smart contract and then issuing a synthetic or analogous version that's maybe pegged one for one in a different form. And so Maker is famous for, I believe it was with Maker, you can only interact with it with WETH. 
And so you need to basically wrap your Ethereum into WETH. And, and the reason you need to do that is because Ethereum is like a layer one asset and you can't necessarily hold it in a smart contract. So to solve that problem, people take Ethereum, they wrap it into wrapped Ethereum or WETH, which is now an ERC-20 version of Ethereum. And now you can plug it into smart contracts and you can actually hold it as an asset in a smart contract. That's sort of where wrapping sort of like came from. Basically, there was there's a f maybe five or six of these assets that are wrapped that were on the market through last summer. And we sort of saw the wrapped Ethereum concept and we said, hey, you know, why don't we do this with other layer one blockchains, bring them onto Ethereum. And now these Ethereum applications that do take in collateral, they take in like, for example, with Maker, you can basically lock up your Ethereum and take out dollars. And so what if you could now lock up your uh, Zcash, for example, or any other layer one asset that you're holding and take out a loan on it? Or what if you could take any other layer one protocol that you're holding, Zcash, Filecoin, Cello, whatever, uh, plug it into a DeFi app and generate a yield on it? So instead of having that asset just sit there, what if you can now plug it into one of these DeFi apps and generate a return? And so when I was sort of thinking of how to sort of position this product, it didn't make sense to plug it into TokenSoft directly just because TokenSoft is very strongly a security token brand. And wrapped assets are not security tokens, they're digital assets. What I wanted was sort of a very separate concept and a separate product line and separate branding because if we put this under TokenSoft, it would just sort of like confuse the market a little bit. So anyways, it's got the wrapped.com domain and basically wanted to create a scalable solution for any type of wrapped asset. So basically taking that concept that was sort of a, a quirk in the space and now operationalizing that and making that you know, a, much, a much larger business um, because there is demand. People do see these sort of like uh, Ethereum applications where they're generating returns or there's AMMs out there and they're wondering, you know, you know, I wish I could use these assets to generate a yield in there. And so got the domain, I actually created the website myself and uh, worked with the designer. And I think we made the made the website on like $600 or something. And um, domain was much more expensive. Got that out there. We were very fortunate to partner with uh, Anchorage. They're the uh, custodian for these uh, assets that are being wrapped. And uh, we've really enjoyed working with them and the team. And they have a fantastic product. Um, they probably have the most sort of forward-thinking, cutting-edge custodial solution that's out there. When we were looking for a solution, that one that one made a lot of sense. Yeah, so we got this to market. Uh, so far, we've launched Wrap Zcash. So now you can bring your Zcash onto Ethereum, and it's uh, today you can use it in Uniswap, SushiSwap. You can use it in Balancer. Um, it got voted in at Maker as well. Uh, same for our Wrap Filecoin. And uh, wrap cello, all the same, except it's going through the maker proposal process right now. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun to uh, work on this project. We also recently announced uh, Bitcoin on Stacks, so we're bringing Bitcoin onto the uh, Stacks blockchain. And now you can uh, hold Bitcoin on, uh, or well, once this launches, you can hold Bitcoin on the Stacks blockchain and uh, you know stack Stacks at the same time. Uh, so we're very excited to enable that also. Stacks on stacks. So there were two two major um, announcements or, or two large brands that made announcements uh, yesterday. Today, um, Amazon uh, mentioned uh, you know launching a 
currency or launching a digital currency project in Mexico. And then uh, MasterCard also announced uh, their play into into crypto. What does that mean for consumers and, and what is that path? Are, are there going to be, you know, more brands that are going to follow them or or, or how, how does this uh, change the game? Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting because when I got into the crypto space, no one wanted to touch it, right? It was uh, very taboo to uh, talk about Bitcoin as a corporation or as a bank. The digital asset at this point is, is mature. It's a lot more stable than it was before. Um, and you're seeing companies like MicroStrategy and Tesla take Bitcoin onto their balance sheets. There's going to be two camps of companies. Uh, there's going to be ones that actually engage with it for intellectual uh, reasons and for, you know, because they believe in it and because they think there's a way to make a lot more money by being involved. And then there's others that they're sort of like catching on to it as, as a fad. And so we sort of saw this in 2015 and 2016. There were uh, large financial institutions that got into Bitcoin, and then there were, there were the ones that were sort of playing around with private blockchains because Bitcoin was still a little bit taboo. Um, and so now you see Fidelity has a very mature stack of products and initiatives involving Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies uh, as a result. And they're way ahead of the game versus the others that sort of uh, were sort of doing things that were more driven by wanting to, to follow, follow in the footsteps because they, they, it's more of a fad. I think right now you're sort of seeing the same thing. So there's going to be companies that are actually actually believe in it and see good reasons for holding Bitcoin or accepting Bitcoin. I think MicroStrategy is a uh, company that, that did that. So they purchased a bunch. They're also evangelizing for it because they genuinely believe in it. And Tesla is doing the same. And if I was to guess, it would be because they just don't want to keep that many dollars on the balance sheet because... A uh, dollar is, uh, I wouldn't say it's being managed the, the best right now. So I, I personally don't think it makes sense to hold any dollars. The other, the other side of it is that Wall Street really likes companies with crypto exposure. Uh, so you see what sort of happened with Riot Blockchain, and I think there was another company as well, where their stocks really shot up when, when the market started taking off. A lot of companies are also seeing this as a way to do better in the stock market. So if they have announcements saying they're involved in crypto, uh, they think Wall Street's going to get really excited about it. I haven't looked at Amazon or MasterCard in depth to see what's going on there. But I think that when they do uh, sort of roll out these products, I think they're sort of they sort of need to be careful, right? So if they get into it for the wrong reasons, then obviously it's going to be a big waste of, of, of time. If they actually understand how the technology works, if they actually understand how the asset behaves over time, uh, then I think they're in it for a much more successful and prosperous future. I think at some point, maybe every company that accepts payments will be accepting crypto because they want the crypto exposure and they sort of see accepting uh, cryptocurrencies as a very passive way to get involved not from an accounting perspective, but in terms of an accumulation perspective, uh, that's a very low lift way to sort of uh, get crypto on your balance sheet. Uh, and then there's gonna be the ones that sort of actively take a position um, like MicroStrategy and Tesla. My guess is that MicroStrategy did a lot more research <laughs> and thinking before they put on their balance sheet and modeling. And uh, Tesla, you know, 1.5 billion just isn't that much for them anyways. That's, I think that was more of a, a, a novelty. But I think it's a, it's a sound decision long term. 
but yeah, I, I think there's different, there's going to be different approaches and uh, hopefully every company sort of has some sort of crypto strategy because I think it gives you definitely a lot more resilience economically um, if you have a decent position in, in, in crypto. Um, so I don't, I don't see the dollar faring well the next five to 10 years. So I, I don't see it as, you know, as a large corporation, you have a lot of cash. I don't think you're in the best spot, but if you have a mix of, you know, cash and crypto or cash and other assets, then I think you're a little bit more resilient towards the future. Yeah, no, these are, these are all great points. Um, while, while you've been talking, I've been rebalancing my portfolio in Coinbase. So thanks thanks for all the tips. I'll let you know how it works out in a, in a few years. <laughs> One thing that is always exciting is that, you know, crypto is a global phenomenon, right? The center of gravity is, it, is kind of all over the place. And it's been interesting seeing how each country is uh, jumping on board. You know, you have folks like in China, you know, putting out digital digital currencies and using it aggressively and then you have folks like in India where you know they've they all for it then they banned it and now they're you know now they went back to to thinking about banning it you know which country do you think is is sort of doing it correctly and you know what are some of the things that you think the bureaucratics are are sort of missing that could actually help with more crypto adoption I think we're just seeing the same old reactions to bitcoin over and over again so when it comes to regulators, some people that work at these with, with these financial regulators, they they're just really opposed to crypto and they just don't want to touch it. And so when it comes to passing regulations, they just don't want to touch it. Uh, a lot of lawmakers are sort of the same when they when they look at it, they just don't necessarily go too deep, but don't see it as something that's that's good for their country. And then there's there's other people in these in, in these agencies that sort of take a more active approach and they actually learn about how it works. Maybe they play around with it and they're like, oh, it's interesting. And you know, if you're if you're a lawmaker, you just don't have that much time. So you're either going you're going to default to sort of the most convenient sort of response for you. And so I think it's perfectly normal that like some countries are embracing it, uh, some countries are a little bit slower because they. Maybe they're a lot more complicated. I think the U.S., especially with the SEC, is a much more complicated regulatory agency with a lot of different arms. And so they've taken a slower approach, but definitely very methodical, definitely very careful, and they understand the technology really, really well. And then you look at Singapore and Switzerland. I think those are sort of more nimble countries. They have nimbler regulatory agencies. They've been able to pass some regulations that have been very forward-thinking with respect to crypto. So when a new concept arises and goes viral, uh, like ICOs did, uh, they those were two countries that were very quick to understand what was going on and to very quickly pass some uh, regulations that provide some clarity and allowed people to continue innovating versus slowing them down from innovating. So now we're looking at India, and India is banning uh, Bitcoin. So obviously, the government is very large. Larger governments are hard to coordinate. Larger governments have a lot more opinions. And with more opinions, you just have more diversity of uh, opinions and thought. And I think they're just going through a phase where the side, and, and I'm saying this without, like, I haven't dug into exactly what's happening. I've just read the headlines and seen it at a very high level. And I think what you have right now is maybe, you know, one side of the opinion has sort of like taken over. And I think this is just very natural for every country. At first, they strongly oppose it. Then they learn a little bit more and then they accept it. Uh, like you said, India has gone back and forth, but that could just be from a rotating uh, set of, of, of lawmakers. I think, you know, in the end, every country is going to have to get comfortable with it, just like they had to get comfortable with the internet. 
or computers or any other like new revolutionary technology. Uh, this one just happens to touch money and it touches crypto touches money in a very religious way. And so it's causing very extreme reactions. Um, and so, you know, which countries are dealing with it the best? I think the countries that sort of learn how it works and pass regulations faster that accept it, I think are going to be better positioned for the long term. I don't think any country has uh, fared well by opposing a new rev revolutionary sort of technology. You know, eventually it just creeps out and, and you have to you have to deal with it. So you can deal with it sooner. You can deal with it later. When you deal with it later, you really uh, slow down. Uh, innovation and growth in your own country. So in the U.S., we saw that there was uh, slower sort of clarity on the regulations in the U.S. And what happened was with any company that was potentially going to run into SEC regulations, they went offshore. And so um, what happened with, with the U.S. is we pushed away a lot of this innovation, a lot of the companies and a lot of our citizens uh, to move to offshore jurisdictions to start their companies there where the regulations were more friendly. And we may see the same thing with India. What's going to happen when crypto is illegal and uh, you have a bunch of innovators that still want to build and still want to create products that's, uh, and create large companies? Well, they'll probably move offshore. Maybe they'll move to uh, Singapore or maybe they'll go to Hong Kong or, or, or somewhere else. Lawmakers can't stop innovation. They might slow it down, uh, but it doesn't go away. It just goes offshore. A lot of regulators are sort of cognizant of that. We've had regulators try to uh, court us into other jurisdictions because they highlight their more uh, friendly regulations for, for the crypto markets. Um, and that's just what happens. You know, people are going to move to the most friendly uh, jurisdictions and continue to innovate there. Awesome. Thanks. That's awesome. Um, so we have, we have one more question before we get into the fun rapid round. Tell us more about Austin, right? Your Bay Area. Uh, what made you choose Austin? How are you enjoying it? It seems like there's a big crypto community now moving to Miami. So uh, walk us through, like, are you happy about that decision? And what do you advise other people that are thinking of moving somewhere uh, and they're interested in blockchain? Like, where would they go? Where do you recommend they go? So as of May of 2020, you know, by then, I think we, we went on lockdown in March, like first week of March. What happened was, was truly fascinating. Everyone that, that worked at Tokenstuff started moving to different places. So people go to Seattle, Idaho, Tennessee, uh, I think we probably are registered in nearly every state in the U.S. by now. It stopped making sense to have our corporate domicile in San Francisco. Obviously, San Francisco and California taxes are very high. Um, when you're domiciled in, in California, it also affects all of your employees downstream, even if they're not in California. And so uh, we had the suggestion by our legal team to move to Austin or Texas. And so uh, we did that. So that's what sort of pulled me out there. The thing about Austin is, uh, so I, I think the food scene is amazing. It's probably the best food scene in, in the world. Uh, I'm okay saying that. Everyone is super nice in Austin. It's almost weird. I think growing up in the Bay Area, like when you walk down the street, no one says hi to you or no one talks to you when you're you know, at a grocery store or whatever. But uh, in, uh, in Austin, like everyone, everyone talks to you and everyone's like super nice and that'll just put you in a really good mood. And so that's, that was very notable. Cost of living's lower, but yeah, more importantly, our corporate taxes are much lower and it doesn't affect our employees downstream. And so it's been a good experience. The summer gets a little hot and sweaty and uh, that's sort of a new phenomenon and experience. But I am uh, moving to LA and the reason is I, I just don't want to become a statistic. It looks like everyone is in crypto and tech has moved to Austin. 
And I just don't feel comfortable, you know, being a statistic. So I'll be uh, moving to LA to sort of get away from that. That's exciting. Keeps it keeps it closer to, to us. Thanks for all the, the amazing insight uh, across the board. And we'd like to close it out and, and sort of just do a, a rapid fire on, you know, getting to know Mason. So to kick things off, what are one to, to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Uh, the Art of War. I read it twice a week. Uh, why Nations Fail. It helped me understand why certain businesses work and why, why they don't in a roundabout way. I don't have a third one. I haven't read a book in a very long time. I stopped reading books besides The Art of War, which is the only book I read twice a week. I stopped reading books maybe five years ago. You just write them now. You're, you're, the, you're the second person on the, on the podcast to say they don't read books anymore. <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's a trend going on. The, the Art of War, like uh, someone recommended that to me at a job fair. He was like, read The Art of War and Patton on Leadership. They were the most irrelevant books at the time to read. But then like once you get into startups, they actually help guide you in very meaningful ways and save you a lot of time. So that's why it's important to read Art of uh, War uh, two times a week and uh, seven times a week uh, otherwise. That's amazing. How has a failure or apparent failure set you up for a later success? So do you have like a favorite failure of yours? Yeah. The one that comes to mind is, is definitely, you know, starting that company without understanding the regulations first. Uh, I sort of mentioned that earlier. That sort of helped start TokenSoft in a way where I said, okay, well, next time, that's going to be the first time I check. Uh, it's the first thing I, I, I check is the regulations. Um, but I, I think there's always like a medium. So like with every mistake, I think we sort of like suffer from like overcompensating for that mistake. And I think that's just as dangerous as like making that mistake in the first place. I think with everything else, something can hit you really, really hard and it can bother you. It might give you like PTSD and you might really try to avoid something in the future. But I think the thing about like companies and startups and business and products is everything is like just as much of an art as it is a science. So there's always that like middle ground. So just because a certain mistake hits you like really hard, it also doesn't mean that you should like try to avoid it completely in the future, but you should probably figure out what's like practical in the middle and not, not be uh, completely sort of taken over by that one mistake. That's awesome. So this is a popular question. If you had a, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere in the world uh, and you can basically get your message across to billions of people, uh, what would your quote say to everyone? It would say, follow me on Twitter at Masonic underscore tweets. And so if you're listening, please uh, go on Twitter and uh, and smash the follow button. It's uh, Masonic underscore tweets. Yeah, for folks that are followers of the of the podcast, uh, you know, once this is up, we'll have the the show notes and and we'll we'll make sure to link Mason's Twitter on there. Uh, this sort of next question: uh, What is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? It could be an investment of money, time, energy. One of the best investments I've made is not going to college. Uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't gone to college yet, don't go to college. One of the best investments I made is uh, just starting to like build things and learning how to build things. It just teaches you like so much. And you can basically, when you try to build things and get them out there, you sort of like learn the like two to three like fundamental things you need uh, to know about business, about finances, about like all aspects of sort of like getting a company out there. Yeah, just building a lot of stuff has been super helpful in terms of uh, 
providing sort of the right sort of uh, building blocks. And I wish I did that sooner. Great. Okay. What's an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? <laughs> see, the folks on Clubhouse can't can't see, but we're, we're, we can actually all see each other because we're on a... And you, you're just, you're turning yeah. red. <laughs> <laughs> What's an unusual habit or absurd thing you love, Mason? You can tell us. No one's listening. I love wearing my Birkenstocks with colorful dress socks because... I am uh, working from home all the time, and I couldn't do that before. That's my unusual habit right now. Uh, in, the, in the last uh, 12 months, uh, what's a new belief or a behavior outside your Birkenstocks uh, that's improved your life the most? Working from home is the best thing ever. I used to want to go to the office and you know have everyone be in the office. And in reality, it's like the biggest waste of time ever. You spend like, one to, if you commute, you spend one to two hours in the car maybe, uh, and you just get stressed out, you know, honking at other cars. I don't know, just being in one place just saves a lot of time. It's a lot better for your mental health, I think, to not deal with, you know, jump around from place to place. And that's my favorite thing ever. And I will never go into an office again, I hope. I think Sunil said the same thing. Um, I, I think the commute hours, he's... Yeah, Sunil looks like he's uh, getting younger too. It's, it's the Birkenstocks and socks. That's... What, what works. I'm part of the Birkenstock club as well. <laughs> what are some bad recommendations you hear in, in the crypto space? Buy Dogecoin? Right now, I think before it was a great recommendation. But so I, I think the one panacea in the crypto space is uh, when like when people hold a lot of a particular coin, they become a little bit like religious about it. So you see that with like Bitcoin maximalists, they almost recommend Bitcoin to a fault. And same with people that hold other bags, like uh, I think XRP has a huge army. I think sometimes it's people's like bags speaking and not their brain. And I think that causes a lot of really bad recommendations uh, at times when like people just shouldn't get into a coin because it's not the right timing for it. Like a lot of people get in at the right price, they get in really early and then they shill until the top and then people buy at the top. And, you know, there's a lot of bad recommendations going out. Uh, today, Lindsay Lohan recommended Tron, I think. And again, you know, we've been in enough markets and uh, that's, that's a risk. I think Neo also recommended Tron today. This is not an endorsement of Tron in any way. Awesome. One thing I really admire about you is, you know, I do see you working all the time. You're, you're an incredible, incredibly hard working individual. I, I see you up at all hours doing 20 things at once. So it's, it's amazing kind of everything you can do in a day. But, you know, clearly when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or, you know, you kind of lose your focus temporarily, how do you kind of bring yourself back? How do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep yourself centered to, to keep going? What, what, what are the the tactics or what are you saying to yourself internally? There's a couple things. There's like the micro of like, how do you keep going through a day, right? Like we only have so much mental bandwidth and capacity before we're like completely useless. When I was a kid, I would like do my homework for like two to three hours and then I'd go play the drums for like an hour and that would like let me like zoom out and then I could like keep working. Like you always have to have like some sort of like break to like operate the most efficiently. In grad school, I would take a nap every three hours for 15 minutes. That was how I would sort of like recharge. So I always have to have like something. Right now, I like go work out or something or go for a drive. 
I wouldn't recommend going on TikTok as a break. <laughs> Can you expand on that? Sunil would like to, to know more. Yeah, wait till you can start paying uh, tips in crypto on TikTok. <laughs> But but I think sort of on the on the macro side of that, like um, every three years I go on like a week long vacation. And the lesson I come away with that is like I really need to take more vacations and just zoom out. And it's something like you have to like force yourself to do. And so the one thing I'm doing in 2021 is I'm just going to take like regular vacations, maybe every other month just to like zoom out, because like I feel like sometimes when you just like work too much, you just get into these like really bad habits and start focusing on things maybe that don't matter um, and don't get you to like the one goal that you need to hit. And the reason is like there's just so much noise. Like um, that's why I hate answering emails is because there's so many requests that pull you in so many directions. And when you sort of step back and say, you know, does focusing on this, putting time into this matter? And for anyone that's listening that sent me an email, I really value your emails and I love answering your emails. Um, this is just an example, an illustrative example. But I think just like zooming out and like figuring out what are the one or two things that are like super important to get you to sort of like the next milestone you want to hit is the most important thing that you can do. So just regularly like taking a day off or maybe taking a few days off and just completely ignoring work and zooming out, I think is super key to sort of staying centered and being the most efficient in your work life. Cool. Uh, last question. Uh, probably doesn't get very much easier, but uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Wearing Birkenstocks and having that really high arch just like hit me really hard and like completely destroy the arch of my foot is the best feeling. My other guilty pleasure is Clubhouse. There you go. Thanks so much, Mason. Thanks, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Hey, it's Krishna. Thanks for listening to Halo Drop. If you got value from this episode, please share it with someone that you think would also enjoy it. For more information, visit our website at halodrop.fm. Mm-hmm.